You're listening to the Money Owners Podcast with Morgan Rochard. Money Owners is a podcast for people who want to be mentally and financially crushing it. This podcast does not provide investment advice and nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued to be investment advice. If you'd like more information on the podcast, the homework, coaching, and everything else Money Owners has to offer, visit www.moneyowners.com. What is happening, my fellow money owners? Today's episode is episode 48, and it's a special one. It's with my husband, Pierre Rochard. Welcome to Money Owners. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. So this episode was born because we did a a, um, webinar together on the uh, Coindesk's uh, Bitcoin for Advisors, Mm -hmm. and we were actually very limited. We had <laughs> we had like 20 minutes to sort of jam in a bunch of content, and I felt like we could have gone on and on and on forever. So um, with that in mind, that's how this sort of came about. Um, I've also wanted to have him on for a while, and I had gotten a lot of questions actually about um, modern monetary theory and also just, yeah, I could see. I, can you guys hear him yeah, rolling sorry, his eyes? Sorry, I, yeah, I forgot I'm on a podcast. You can't see my... My facial expressions of rolling my eyes at modern monetary theory, but any, in any case, I'm happy to answer any questions that the audience might have on that topic. Um, and if you don't know Pierre Rochard, then you're really missing out because he has a really prolific Twitter account. You should follow him at Pierre underscore Rochard, and you'll learn all sorts of things about Bitcoin and maybe some other things too. So without further ado, let's kick it off. So in your view... Why should people own Bitcoin? Mm, so I think that we've got to go back to first principles of why do people hold money? What, because really, if you look at the title of the Bitcoin white paper, it's peer-to-peer electronic cash. Now, non-accountants think that cash is uh, literally paper money, right? The actual uh, $100 bills. Um, But accountants know that that's actually a very narrow definition of cash. Uh, In fact, we call that petty cash uh, (laughs) that you would put in a little lockbox. Now, to to accountants, cash is really the the most liquid asset on a balance sheet. Uh, It's also what the financial statements are going to be denominated in. um, So it's both a store of value, right? You hold cash on your balance sheet. Um, but it's also a unit of account that your um, that your income statement and obviously your statement of cash flows are denominated in. Okay, so why do people hold cash? It's because they are trying to hedge future uncertainty about cash flows. So they don't know when specifically they're going to be receiving cash, and they don't necessarily know when they're going to be spending cash. There are exceptions, of course. You know, you you might have a biweekly check, uh, mm-hmm. paycheck that you know is coming. Um, but sometimes you get laid off from your job and that stream of cash flows that you were depending on disappears. And so that's why responsible financial planners tell their clients to hold maybe six months of expenses in cash. Um, and th- that that's all fine and well. The problem that uh, we have encountered that Bitcoin solves is that uh, when you're holding this cash, uh, it's actually getting diluted because there's somebody else out there creating more cash. And so um, while you have six months worth of expenses, you're actually rolling that cash balance, right? So you're not spending that down. I, 
ideally. Otherwise, it's defeating its purpose. Or something obviously happened in your situation, which made you dip into your emergency fund. Right. And so you're having to hold a large amount of cash. And this is actually, this should be your number one priority when you're getting your financial house in order, is to build up a cash reserve so that you can meet unexpected cash flows. Um, and so if you're constantly getting diluted in that, you need to be adding to it constantly, right? Um, and you're really treading water. Um, with Bitcoin, there's no dilution. And so in practice, what that means is that when you hold Bitcoin, uh, you see its purchasing power increase while you're holding it. And so arguably, maybe you'd say, well, I need to hold less Bitcoin, but... Um, you know, people have differing views on rebalancing. <laughs> For sure. Um, but then it gets into a question of, okay, uh, so there's the dilution, uh, that, uh, the dilution problem where fiat currencies, you know, you have central banks around the world, but also, you know, commercial banks create money as well. Um, and then um, we see dollars get created abroad in the form of euro dollars as well. So there's really an infinite amount of money out there. And that's what the MMT people talk about, is mm -hmm. that they say, well, you know, you can create as many dollars as you want. It's like a measuring stick. You know, you don't create more feet by measuring feet. Um, yeah. And that's, to me, that's kind of a fallacy of confusing the unit of account with the store of value. Um, but they're actually correct. And so my counter argument to them is, yes, that's why you should hold something that doesn't get diluted like Bitcoin. Um, now... Why does Bitcoin not get diluted? It's because it's decentralized. So anyone can verify that Bitcoin's monetary policy is being respected by the maintainers of the ledger. And so all of these protocol rules are um, in code using encryption. And you can actually you can run a node on your desktop computer in the same way that you would stream Netflix. You know, it's just a little app that you download that syncs. And it verifies the entire integrity of the ledger history so that you know that if you own one Bitcoin, it's one twenty-one millionth of the total fully diluted supply of Bitcoin. And um, that's actually, that's kind of unique from an asset perspective, that you would have an asset that it's, uh, it's non-dilutive. And so you can uh, really... Um, not worry about that part. Now, obviously, there's other parts that you have to worry about, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So getting into that, I mean, I think it kind of ties in really well is when we talk about assets traditionally in financial planning, we think of stocks and bonds, maybe real estate is included in that too. Um, but like, right, stocks, companies can issue more shares. We've seen them do that where they either buy back shares or they issue more shares. Same thing with bonds, right? As long as they have some sort of buyer willing to buy their debt. Um, they are typically able to issue more debt. I mean, up to a certain limit, obviously, that makes sense within their capital structure, unless they want to go bankrupt or something else or be rated, you know, really poorly. Um, but Bitcoin is different in that sense because it, you can't, there literally is no way for you to do that just because of how decentralized it is. So it does, it, that is interesting, I think, for sure. Um, but I think though what's often missed with people is why it why it isn't necessarily a problem that you are diluted. Mm, yes. So um, the the problem is that while we we talk about that six month 
reserve, right? For you, you have enough cash to pay expenses for six months. Um, the reason that it's only six months and not longer than six months is because at some point you need to start sweeping that cash into investments. So you need to be buying equity, buying bonds, earning yield on that cash in order to compensate you for the fact that if you stay in cash without any yield, you'll have that loss of purchasing power. Um, and so there's, um, so th there's that effect of you're going to invest before you would have otherwise invested because you will get diluted out of the cash. Yeah. So this is something we talk a lot about on Money Owners, I would say, is like what our brains are doing and how uh, how we respond really generally to what we're thinking about money and then the actions that we take as a result of the thoughts and feelings and everything else that comes up when we deal with money. So um, one of the things that I find really interesting about Bitcoin is like it kind of aligns investors with what we want to do in our lizard brain. <laughs> Because like in deep and down inside, like everybody, I think that people for the most part would want to get paid daily. They would want to leave their job with money um, in their pocket. And then they would want to take that money and literally like spend it on something and then take the rest and put it under their mattress. And they'd want to do that on a daily basis, except that if they did that because of inflation, they would lose purchasing power. And that's what you're talking about with the dilution. At some point, you actually you are, it necessitates investment when you otherwise wouldn't need to invest. Um, and we don't really like investing. We don't like being forced to invest. We don't like being forced to invest outside of our risk tolerances. Um, we definitely feel uncomfortable when stock markets go down or even when Bitcoin goes all around. I see what people say on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so I, we don't really like that part of it. So it makes sense that you would want to like that you could have some sort of asset reserve that you wouldn't necessarily need to worry about from that perspective. Yeah. And it's it's. With Bitcoin, you know, we look at the volatility of the price. And when we think about where that volatility is coming from, it's coming from new adoption. So Bitcoin has waves of new adopters uh, because humans are herd animals. So we can't help ourselves. Um, and not everybody understands Bitcoin right away. Like it took me a while to understand Bitcoin and to really have confidence in it as a monetary system. So it makes sense to me that this adoption happens in waves and causes uh, volatility. But um, on, on the investment side, even if you are Warren Buffett and you love investing and you love the investing process, um, Warren Buffett, he holds a lot of USD. He holds a lot of cash. Now, obviously, <laughs> if you look at his balance sheet, it's actually not cash. It's cash equivalents, mm -hmm. right? So, so he is actually having to put that money to work, uh, even <laughs> exactly. when you know it's liquid enough to to be categorized as cash, uh, which really shows you how far things have come. <laughs> um, and the reason he does that is because you don't always have the right investment opportunities available to you, and so you might want to hold off on investing and wait for the right opportunity. Um, and for example, in real estate, maybe you're waiting for a specific plot of land to go on sale, mm -hmm. at which point you'll acquire it and develop it and build it. Um, and you want to have the capital, the cash, to be able to act on that opportunity quickly and decisively, right? Because if you don't have the cash and the capital at hand, you're going to have to borrow or uh, raise that money when the opportunity happens. And now you're under the stress of two things. 
raising financing and deploying that financing into an investment. Yeah. Um, instead of having those be disconnected and allowing your cash to time travel with you. Yeah, I mean, I think a really good example of this for our listeners is like any business owners out there, right? Like we tend to keep more cash around as business owners because there's opportunities maybe within your business to do something or you're, you know, maybe you're at a W-2 job currently looking to switch into becoming a business owner. So you're stacking up some cash so you can go out and do the next best thing, which is, I mean, it's a form of investing in yourself to then go out and start a business or reinvest back into your business. But it makes it really difficult when there's inflation um, to know how much you need to have and how long it's going to take you to save. I mean, we can obviously you can crunch the numbers to get there. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to save that much more because your cash is depleting in value. Yeah, it's a it's a melting ice cube that you've got um, that you're sitting on. And um, Bitcoin has had kind of the the opposite of, in fact, it has swung so far in the other direction that people talk about hodl mania. <laughs> right. That, because there's so there's this uh, phrase HODL, H-O-D-L. Um, some people think that it's an abbreviation for hold on for dear life. Right. It as, could be. As, as you're experiencing <laughs> the volatility of the Bitcoin price. Um, but actually, uh, if you look at the historical record, uh, HODL came from a post from um, a Bitcoin forum where the author basically explained that he lacked the trading ability to time the market. And so he was just going to hold. And that was just a hard-earned lesson that he had gotten, uh, you know, trying to buy the dip or whatever and getting caught upside down. And I think the reason that meme really took off and became um, something that gets discussed even in mainstream media and uh, in, mm-hmm. you know, uh, n- among among normies um, is is because it touched on a really important fundamental truth about Bitcoin, which is that historically, if you just sat on it, you did rather well. You didn't have to trade it. And so it just was a matter of just holding the position long enough um, and having strong enough hands uh, to, to be able to do that. And... Um, I think that the the HODL meme and and all of it that goes with it is only going to get stronger because I think that it's supported by the economic fundamentals of, hey, your purchasing power is going to increase. It's going to increase, one, because of the adoption we talked about, but it's also going to increase because there's the economy is always getting more productive and businesses are always coming up with cheaper ways to deliver goods and services. So yeah, if your cash isn't depleting in value and there's a, it's a deflationary asset, which I think is a little bit hard for people to understand because when they hear deflation, they think price is going down. But when you think of deflation in respect to your money, it's actually a good thing because it means your money can buy more goods. Yeah, your power, your purchasing power is increasing. Um, and you know, one one class of people that don't like that is frankly politicians, because they're looking at their next. And this is bipartisan. I'm not pointing fingers. They're looking at the next election and they want to juice the economy now. And so for them, it's actually a a hindrance that people would hold cash. They want them to go out and spend that cash. Now, the consequence is only that you're pulling future cash flows forward to the present. It's not that you're creating additional real wealth in the economy. Um, So I kind of see that as as, as short-sighted, but it, it helps explain the motivation of um, a lot of folks who are 
uh, anti-saving, right? anti-holding cash, and who are always talking about how we need to make cash circulate. Right? Mm. That's what they always talk about. Yeah. But and, then they also complain about how little Americans save. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that we've become a mass consumer society. Yep. And, and that the financial system is very fragile. And you've got all of these subprime mortgage-backed <laughs> securities. You have to spend and save at the same time somehow. Yes. Yeah. And you have to invest quickly, but very wisely. Right. Yes. Yes. Very quickly and wisely. <laughs> they're asking for a lot from they, people they from really normal are, people to be honest because i mean even i mean in my profession right and i've been i've been in finance for over a decade 12 years now um and i don't like i can't do that either um and i look at this stuff all the time like in my head it, like i think the other thing why i really like bitcoin is like it really aligns with my values of investing and values that i try to have my clients have as well which is like we set an asset allocation for a reason and we set it based on your risk tolerance, your time horizon for your specific goals, things that are unique to you. And then we hold it for a really, really long time. Um, and that works really, it works well. Uh, and Bitcoin fits in really well with that because it's a long-term asset that you can hold. Yeah, and then we can we can go further in terms of what the fundamentals are and what's driving the adoption because um, to me, there's kind of the... Okay, so the the let's say we're convinced, all right, the non-dilution, that's great. It also has other fundamental properties that make it interesting for people to hold. Um, for one, you're able to secure this value using cryptography. And that enables a lot of features that just aren't available in other asset classes. Um, what I mean by that is that, for example, you can do multi-sig where you need um, multiple different private keys to come together uh, in order to unlock Bitcoin and to send it. And so why don't we back before yeah. we go into multisig, why don't we back up? So I know that a lot of listeners are really into Bitcoin and they found me through you and therefore mm -hmm. experts on this. But then there are other listeners who are kind of on the financial planning side who are like private key. What what are you talking about? Mm. So um, why don't we actually just dive in really quickly into what a private key is and how you should take care of it? And then we'll get into multi-sig. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. So, um, so, so Bitcoin is completely open source. All of the source code is available online. You, you can go read all the source code. And it's a public network. You can join the Bitcoin network. You don't have to get anyone's permission. You just hop on. And so the, that kind of begs the question of how is this remotely secure? You know, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's inconceivable to people that you would have a system that's completely transparent, that's going to be a monetary system that is going to secure hundreds of billions of dollars worth of value. And the reason it's secure is because there's one part of the system that is not public, and that is the private keys. Hmm. And the private keys, you can think of it as kind of like a password. It's just random numbers and letters. Now, it's got to be better than a password. Passwords, you know, how many people have set passwords of like password one? You know, like the one exclamation mark. Okay, that's not secure. That... Like you use your dog's name yeah. and you add an exclamation point and you do it everywhere. So if you did that <laughs> for a Bitcoin private key, your Bitcoin would get stolen very quickly. Yeah. Because the other part of the private key is called the public key. And so you derive the public key from the private key and then you compress it, you shorten it into an address. And that address, that is what is going to be public on the Bitcoin blockchain. 
And um, I won't get into too much of the technical mechanicals of it, but basically the idea is that this private key is what secures your Bitcoin. And anyone who has that private key is going to be able to spend your Bitcoin. So you have to treat it very, very, very carefully. And unfortunately, there's a long history of Bitcoin private keys being compromised in one way or another. Yeah. So I think though, when people typically hear about Bitcoin private keys being compromised, they hear it in these articles where like there were hackers or there was other stuff. What would you say though is the most common way that people's private keys get compromised? By themselves, that they make it, people lock themselves out of their Bitcoin by making it too complex or too, um, too they, they tried to be too creative or too clever. Um, so there's, there's that. And then there's by social engineering. So social engineering is when someone contacts you and they're impersonating either a company or somebody else, maybe your friend or uh, even maybe your husband and wife. They might be doing a deep <laughs> fake and they are trying to uh, get you to send them the Bitcoin, to manipulate you into sending the Bitcoin. Now, they might manipulate you into doing that by offering extraordinarily high returns, right? So um, kind of uh, like Ponzi scheme type stuff will we'll hoover in Bitcoin. Um, or they are saying, hey, look, we've created something that is significantly better than Bitcoin, and therefore you should send us your Bitcoin. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is a Twitter problem for sure, too. Like, I've gotten messages from people that are pretending to be you who I don't know why they think that I would be a good candidate for that. Like, I wouldn't know that you were asking me to, <laughs> to donate Bitcoin to them. I mean, it seems a little insane, but... They are either bots or they <laughs> they just don't know anything. Um, I think a lot of them are bots and uh, it's all automated. And so you've got to keep in mind when you're entering into this Bitcoin world. And, you know, we, we're singling out Bitcoin here, but it's really a problem throughout the all financial the crypto, system. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Across cryptocurrencies, throughout the financial system. I mean, there you can go on, um, was it the FCC? Yeah, FTC. FTC, sorry. The, they, <laughs> the, FC, the FTC's website, they have all the they have a lot of scams on there. I mean, they're missing some of them, but... They're um, missing some of them. You should send them yeah, in. Yeah, i got to send them yeah. more scams. But yeah, they do have... I mean, it's one of those things where um, you, if you're in a situation where you don't know the person well and they're asking you to send them money for something that even seems like a legitimate reason, it's a, it's a pretty good red flag. Um, and something so simple as like you get a letter in the mail from collections right from Ver the IRS or from the IRS like verify directly with the IRS or with the person who quote unquote sent you to collections that that was actually the letter that they that they moved you there rather than just assuming hey I owe this money it's going to affect my credit that kind of a thing um, well this you know I want to I want to single out the IRS here yeah okay so <laughs> the IRS um if if someone uh does your tax refund thing mm -hmm. and takes your tax refund from you yeah the IRS is not responsible for that. Oh, yeah. Well, they're not responsible for a lot but of But if, <laughs> if someone impersonates the IRS and you send the money to the IRS, yeah. you are responsible for that. Mm -hmm. You have to go pay the IRS. So there's a, a double standard it's in impersonation. It's such a double standard, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with identity theft. They like they don't care at all. Identity theft to me is, is kind of a, a, a fiction. It's that 
if, if a bank uses my identity or relies on someone misrepresenting my identity to make a loan, mm-hmm. that's the bank's fault. Why would that be my fault as the person who happened to have that social security number? Um, you know, they should have a better underwriting process. But it's, totally. it's, it's so all this to say that um, in, in, in the big, <laughs> yeah, let's bring it back to, to Bitcoin. Um, you know, Bitcoin work, exists in this digital world. And thus, it is subject to all of the dangers of this digital world. But it also has significant advantages over other assets in this regard. So, um, you know, the the fact that it is a private key that is just basically information means that you could, in theory, memorize it. And so you've just got it in your head. And that would mean that you have, uh, you know, this 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 asset that's secured by your private key that's memorized in your head and you can just cross borders with that. Mm-hmm. And they would be, you know, they could search you all they want. They wouldn't be able to find it. Um, it's also, you know, uh, from a legal perspective, nice because you just plead the fifth. So <laughs> they can't extract it that way in, in the United States at least. Um, so there's that part of it, but there's also uh, a lot of effort and work has been put into creating dedicated hardware devices for private keys. Yeah. Because a lot of early Bitcoiners recognized that this private key situation is very challenging for people to deal with and very unforgiving in its default state of nature. Yeah, and I do I do think it keeps people from going into bitcoin i really do because and i and i sympathize for sure because i mean we're so used to having other institutions hold our assets and help us with that we're not actually like when was the last time people actually kept like really large amounts of cash basically in their house i mean unless you're like doing some sort of a illegal activity where you <laughs> where you're hiding cash in like your you know your backyard for your the most banana part. stand yeah exactly but <laughs> there's always money in the banana stand unless you're doing that you know you're really for the most part, people haven't been doing this for centuries. So um... I, I will say, though, you don't have to do it for Bitcoin. There are custodial solutions for Bitcoin um, yeah. that exist today. So you started to talk about multisig before I interrupted you. So why don't we get into multisig first and then we can go into other custodial solutions? Yeah. So the the idea with multisig is that um we're still trying to do it ourselves, but we're trying to um, be a little bit more forgiving with ourselves. Uh, and so that allows you to do, for example, three of five. So you've got five private keys. You only need three of them to unlock these Bitcoin. So we're, we're trying to get a, a, a number of issues here. One is that it allows you to uh, decentralize your private key. So now, for example, you could have one in a safe deposit box at a bank. You could have one at your in-laws house. You could have one at your own house or uh, you could even, you know, go on an underwater undersea adventure <laughs> and hide, you know, one of your private keys uh, in the Mariana Trench. There you go. Or you could shoot it to the moon. And all of these are ways, and now this one's especially important, you could put it in a different jurisdiction. Yeah. And so what it allows you to do is have this this gold, this digital gold, but it doesn't exist in any specific place at any one point in time, which is impossible with gold, right? Gold, ultimately, the atoms are going to be in one specific place yeah, uh, in a storage, vault. Yeah, usually one storage, yep. 
And we we might think of a a gold vault of having multiple keys, right, uh, for the front entrance. Yes. The, the problem is that um, it's still if, stored though in the one location. And if you've watched any good heist movie. You know that there's... They're uh, always going to get in. They're always going to get in. <laughs> uh, they can dig a hole to the other side. Yeah. And before you know it, it's it's no longer multi-sig. They get some C4. They figure it out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a way. And then with checks, you know, you can have a check that has two signatures on it. The problem is that uh, you're relying on human judgment, right, of um, are these signatures similar enough to... Yeah, and I actually, I mean, I don't even know the last time somebody actually checked a signature on a check, let's be honest. Whereas with Bitcoin, you're, you're, check, you're doing these signatures using cryptography. Yeah. So not only is there no way to fake it, it's very trivial to verify it. It's very easy to see, okay, this signature is a forgery or, okay, this signature actually did come from this private key. Now, did it occur by the authorized user? That's kind of a separate story, but... Um, so yeah. The, the, yeah, the yeah. other nice thing though about multisig is, right, like we're married. Mm -hmm. Maybe we want to have joint custody of our Bitcoin. We could do that through multisig. So it's not just an, like it, you can kind of take it further than just, you know, having a three of five for your own security, but it could also be that you have two authorized signers basically through multisig. That's right. And that's that's great for uh, spouses. It's also great for corporations where you need to have um, a, a segregation of duties so that you have different authorized signers um, and you can have kind of an enterprise grade treasury solution, which you can't do like even with like paper physical cash. Obviously, you just have a little lockbox mm -hmm. that, that gets reconciled. That's the best you can do. Um, and, and then with financial institutions, traditional financial institutions, uh, they're even further behind. Like, they have two-factor authentication. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's their multi-sig. I mean, their multi-sig is really that they verify you say who you are who you are when you do your paperwork, right? Um, and if you are, let's say, a trustee and you have multiple trustees that they get everybody to sign and then they make sure that if everybody like that, the documents basically state that if everybody has to sign, everybody has to sign every time money gets moved. So, they, I mean, they do things, but it's really it's more like paperwork related and relying on human judgment, obviously, to make these, some of these decisions. And, and, and prone to failure. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I just described some of the situations where, you know, you might lose your Bitcoin, right? It's it's risky. Um, I would argue that it's still less risky than all of the other alternatives if you look at it like apples to apples. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've sort of grown accustomed to there being custodians in some way or another and that the custodian is going to save us. But, I mean, there, we have their reputation really to rely on. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that they can't one day, like, figure out how to take a bunch of money. I mean, to as an example, TD Ameritrade, when um, the COVID crisis happened, they were so worried about issuing third-party checks because people were working from home that they just stopped doing it. Um, so if that meant, like, that you normally paid the IRS your quarterly tax estimates um, out, of, out of, like, an individual account at a at a custodian, they weren't letting you do that anymore um, because that's considered a third-party check and they didn't want, like, basically their people handling money at home. Um, and it's nice that they took that precaution, obviously, but it also was like, I remember when we were trying to do this for one of my clients, it was like, 
such a goddamn headache, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, I just need to pay this tax bill for my client. Like, can we work something out here? And they're like, well, we got to send it here. We got to get her on the phone. We can mail it to her and then she can mail it out. I'm like, okay, this is just, yeah. I mean, there are other hiccups that can happen in the system as a result of having a custodian. So in some regards, what's, what I think is nice about Bitcoin is that, yes, there are custodial solutions as well, which we'll get into, but you can also just have a stash in your, you know, that you know where it is. It's, you know, and it's privately held and that you take care of and that you're responsible for. And it kind of ties into a lot of the other things that we talk about with personal finance, which is really taking ownership of your life and your money. Um, and Bitcoin is a great place to help you do that. Yeah, that, that's right. And the other part of it is that you don't have to put all your eggs in one basket. So you can have uh, different solutions for storing your Bitcoin uh, and and use a custodial solution or two, or uh, they even have today collaborative custody. So, uh, for example, Casa and Unchained Capital, where you have multi-sig, but you also have a quote-unquote custodian in, involved in the multi-sig. Technically, they're not a custodian because they don't have the ability to unilaterally move the money. But if you were to lose a private key, they would have a recovery key that would allow you to to, to fix your situation and, and get your Bitcoin back. Yeah. So how does it work? Is it like where you have two of three and basically like you hold one, maybe a, a bank safe deposit has one and then they actually CASA or um, Unchained Capital would hold one? That's that's right. Now, they've got different details, but in principle, what you described is correct. Okay, great. So let's say you lose the one in your house for whatever reason. Now, at least you have the one at the safety deposit box and you contact them and basically you can recover your asset. And move, yeah, move it to a, a new setup yeah. with a new device that replaces the old one. I see. Okay. So you would basically restart the two of three by moving what they had into a new asset and then they would, you would create a new recovery device with them. Right. I see. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think that that like, I feel like for a lot of people, it makes sense to do something like that. Right. I mean, we're all kind of fallible in some ways and maybe you think that you can take responsibility for your Bitcoin, but at the end of the day, like if you have a lot of it or, you know, even a little bit of it, if it goes up in value, you you want to protect that asset. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, now, on the custodial front, um, so it's it's interesting to note that there has been an evolution in the industry towards this. And so when Bitcoin was first released, it didn't have all of this infrastructure around it. And this infrastructure is getting built as we learn and understand where people screw up <laughs> so that, uh, you know, we can... Um, apply the band-aids and uh, make it so that Bitcoin's more robust and, and kind of lives up to its promise um, with fewer of the risks. Uh, and I think that it's it's been rather successful in that regard of evolving. Yeah, I would say so for sure, too. And then, yeah, I mean, there are other custodial options. Um, every, I mean, the thing is, right, like, there's something that people talk about in the Bitcoin community all the time, which is not your keys, not your Bitcoin, which basically means that if you don't hold your private keys, then in some regards, you have what's known as a receivable where you're relying on a third party to give you that asset back. Um, so like a place like Fidelity right now is custodying Bitcoin, but you don't actually hold your private keys. Um I don't, I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's it's still a good option though, no? I mean, if you really feel like you can't take any responsibility for your Bitcoin, but you do want to have some sort of exposure, 
Um, at the very least, if you start somewhere there, then you get your feet wet, you start to learn more about the technology, and then maybe eventually you decide to go buy your own Bitcoin and hold your own private keys and everything else. Yeah, and I, I feel that same way about like GBTC. So mm-hmm. it's it's an ETF-like product, although it's not quite an ETF, and it trades at a premium quite often. So it's uh, technically a private placement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or, well, it is a private placement. It is. Yeah. And that then trades on the secondary market. As a consequence of that, it often trades at a hefty premium. Mm-hmm. Um, so be careful with it. But um, basically, the idea being that. Look, if, if you just want to be able to use your traditional equities trading platform to acquire a Bitcoin position without having to deal with multi-sig or private keys or this whole newfangled system, that you can just go buy GPTC and start building up your exposure to Bitcoin. And I, I'm supportive of that. Um, I, I, but I, I would still emphasize that it's just a first step. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think it's great that you you would get some sort of exposure. I mean, other options would be, right, like you open up a Coinbase account, a Kraken account, Gemini account, one of these exchanges, and you just go on there and you you buy a little bit and you even leave it there just to sort of, I mean, that's kind of the same thing, right? You would be using that exchange as a custodian. You technically don't own your private keys. You don't want to leave massive quantities of the asset over there, but it is a good way to just sort of see what it is. See, I mean, I think that that's a step farther even than doing GBTC because like you're opening up a separate account at a um, a crypto like a crypto exchange rather than you know using your traditional account to do it, um, but it'll take you a little bit closer to when you know you're ready to do the research and start to feel it like to actually hold your private keys and everything else. Yeah, one of the criticisms of GBTC is that there isn't a way of getting delivery of the underlying. Yeah, and so you can't convert it like that now. So if you go on a crypto exchange and you buy Bitcoin, um, I would also encourage you to uh, experiment with withdrawing a little bit Mm -hmm. to your own uh, keys and to really try out in small amounts. You don't have to transfer the whole balance of the Bitcoin that you bought. Um, I would really encourage people to to experiment with a small amount, um, sending back and forth. And, you know, it's I, I the metaphor I use is that using Bitcoin is quite often the equivalent of using a firearm. It's a very, very powerful tool. Um, and so it gives the user a tremendous amount of responsibility. Uh, and that you should start out by shooting a small caliber twenty two uh, before <laughs> you decide that you need a fifty caliber sniper rifle. Yeah, and you wouldn't let your kids, you know, get into, you know, leave the lockbox open your or cats, leave it, right? your, your cats, anything. So it's kind of the same thing with Bitcoin, right? You don't like leave your private keys out. You you know you try to take best responsibility that you can for that asset, um, in in a different way than you've really ever had to do before in in the current monetary system. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, now the the other advantage of being digital and being global is that you're able to then send this asset, send this money anywhere in the world, at any time, on any day, and it'll just get there. 
Yeah, I also, I like the other thing that you had said about custody to me, um, where let's say, I don't know, let's say your Aunt Irma lives in Iowa and you visit her all the time and you also have an uh, Uncle Henry that you go see in South Carolina, right? That you would then, maybe you would just, you would literally have a private key in each of these locations and that would be another way of having multi-sig um, because you physically go to those places anyway, so the money would be there for you when you were there. Now, the risk is if your uncle or aunt trips upon it and <laughs> decides to claim these bitcoin themselves or they get fished into uh or they them. don't realize that it, what it is they throw, and they it, throw out. it out yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. you may be like i don't know you gotta have be to careful figure out. yeah you, you still careful. have to be careful but i kind of like the idea that you can like have money where you travel rather than bringing money where you travel i agree, I agree. yeah I actually wanted to um, pick your brain a little bit about um, GBTC a little bit more since it is so popular. So, um, well, two things, right? Like there's gold ETFs, obviously, and they exist out there. And nobody is ever like gets upset that they can't get delivery on their gold after when they hold their ETF. Um, so I, but it's kind of different with Bitcoin, right? Because you do you do want to hold your private keys. Um, so people have different reasons for owning Bitcoin or for wanting economic exposure to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So if if you just purely want to speculate on the price, right, then uh, GBTC is a great way to do that. So our futures, frankly, mm -hmm. CME has cash settled futures. So the trading cash settled futures might actually be the, the more cost effective way of uh, speculating on Bitcoin's price than GBTC. Um, and, and then it really becomes a question of, are you, are, are you, do you feel confident about holding your own private keys? And it's kind of gets into the same kinds of questions of like people's risk tolerance. People are going to have different um, levels of confidence in their own ability with computers, right? I've, mm -hmm. I've even, I've met people who um, on the surface should be very comfortable with computers uh, but are actually very anxious around computers. <laughs> and, and are you talking about your wife? <laughs> no, I'm not that bad. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, and and find even basic tasks to be challenging <laughs> on the computer. I'm not talking about it. Right, right, no, okay. I, I do feel this way about printers, though. I got to tell you, I feel completely incompetent around. Everyone printers. feels that way about printers. Man, that's a universal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If anyone has a fix for that. <laughs> Well, you, you hire an intern and you tell them to fix it. <laughs> yeah. Fix my printer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody's going to like send me an angry message on my on moneyowners.com being like, why do you print stuff? Printers are a scam. Yeah, they kind of are. They are. Yeah. Anyways, um, <laughs> the other thing is, so um, an ETF has kind of been in the works for Bitcoin, but it's never really come out. So um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or what that means for investors. Yeah, it's it's a strange situation. Um, it's, you know, would you have an ETF come out where the only asset held by that ETF is USD? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's why um, I've heard this from advisors. They want a, a crypto ETF. They want a mix of things where it holds like market cap weighted basically the top 10 or whatever. Um, and actually, I think it's a good segue into the other things I wanted to talk about on this podcast, which is kind of why you don't really want to hold any other assets other than Bitcoin. 
Yeah. So, I mean, okay, let's just bring it to the traditional currency world. You've mm -hmm. got U.S. dollars, and then you've got Zimbabwean dollars, and you've got Canadian dollars. Now, are we going to call all of these dollars? No. When somebody <laughs> says dollars, they're talking about U.S. dollars. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's really no rules about what countries can name their currency. So if they want to call it dollars, uh, then the U.S. can't stop them from doing that. It's actually the U.S. stole that name from Spain. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to be a certain amount of <laughs> silver. It was the dollar. And um, Spain stole it from Germany. It was the Thaler. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's got a very long history. And then obviously I'm sure it Germany stole back, it yeah. from the Roman Empire, etc. <laughs> they stole it from the Lydians, who yes. apparently invented coinage. The, the Babylonians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so uh, to, to, to bring it back into the world of uh, cryptocurrencies, um, so there's, there's a lot of competitors in this space uh, that are trying to either innovate versus Bitcoin or um, do more marketing and so grow faster than Bitcoin. I think that they've got a, they've got a lot of headwind because Bitcoin immediately defaulted to what what I would view as kind of the ideal monetary policy of saying, hey, we're going to have a fixed supply cap of 21 million Bitcoin. So how would you improve upon that, right? You could have it decrease, but that means you've got to steal someone's coins, <laughs> which uh, yeah. is, uh, undermines the integrity of the system. Um, or you have it continue to increase past 21 million, but then that introduces dilution. And so you're, 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 the best you can do is have it be the same, right? Of, well, instead of 21 million Bitcoin, we're going to do 300 million Pierre coin. Mm. And we'll have that fixed supply. Okay, the, so, you know, you would think that that would mean that I would become a billionaire, right? Because now I've issued a fixed supply currency yeah. that is scarce. Um, the problem is that in order for anyone else to buy into it, you have to show that there's some advantage to it. To over Paracoin over the Bitcoin network. Yeah. yeah. And all you've established is parity. So there's... Well, I think that's the thing about Litecoin, right? And yeah, and I think also kind of the only reason it's still around is just because like it's an almost a network effect at this point that it's been around for so long. Yeah, yeah, and and then the other thing that Litecoin does, but a lot of other cryptocurrencies do this as well, is that they take different trade offs than Bitcoin, and then they advertise the advantage they get from this trade off while omitting the disadvantage of the trade-off. Mm. Yeah, so this is a really good point. So one of the things that I find really interesting about Bitcoin and, and also really aligns with how I think about like finances and money in general is that Bitcoin has, has made it be very, like not sim well, simplistic, I guess, is the right way of looking at it, even though obviously there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in the code to make it be what it is. But they've tried to keep the like the blockchain itself, very simple. It doesn't do anything other really than than transactions, right? Um, and and by design. Um, and also because it is so decentralized, they've had a hard time really having anything new get enacted upon the Bitcoin network. Whereas a lot of these other currencies, we've seen a lot of other things and they've wanted to be more 
innovative with their money. Um, and when you think of money, you don't really, <laughs> like, I don't really think of like innovation as being like the most exciting thing about money, right? It's really more utility and, and saving it and all the things that Bitcoin actually already does supply for you. So um, with that, I think I sort of, maybe I, I stole your thunder here, but Oh, I think that's no. where you were going with it. Yep, that's that's <laughs> right. That's right. Um, and that that you have a lot of people uh, saying that you know their their competitor, their competing cryptocurrency is is better than Bitcoin, um, but ultimately they they are t they are taking some shortcuts or they are um, taking some different trade offs. So let's give a concrete example. Um, in, in Bitcoin, there is a limit on the number of transactions per second, or really how many transactions or how much data can fit into the Bitcoin blockchain. And so the reason that there's a rate limit on the data getting added to the Bitcoin blockchain is to keep it decentralized. It's so that all of the Bitcoin nodes can keep up with this data and they don't fall behind. And then, you know, they, they would no longer be part of the system. Hmm. So... Other cryptocurrencies say, you know, let's not have a limit to the data because that way we can maximize the number of users we get. And if we get lots of people using our, our thing, then that means that it will be uh, it'll be worth a lot. Right. Its value will go up because of a huge amount of demand. The fallacy there is that uh, when the data picks up and you've got a lot of data that's being added to this blockchain, now the number of nodes suddenly drops dramatically. Because you need that much more compu computing power, basically, to maintain a node. Right. You've got to have like an enterprise-grade server in a data center <laughs> with a huge amount of RAM and a huge amount of disk space. And it's um, it becomes a situation where now you have like a handful of businesses that are running nodes. Hmm. And their, their incentive is to create more of the underlying unit. And so if you concentrate the power of the system into a few hands, they will succumb to the temptation to inflate. And obviously we know that's true because we've seen it happen to non-cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. um, we've also seen it happen to cryptocurrencies uh, where because of their centralized, uh, so outside of Bitcoin, uh, there have been a number of different examples of um, coins changing their monetary policy uh, due to the decision making of centralized parties. Yeah. Can you give an example of a coin that's done that? Um, yeah. So controversially, uh, the Ethereum network and its underlying asset ETH um, has had a bit of a undefined uh, monetary policy or rather it's defined on the fly. And so during the early period of Ethereum, it was said that there would only ever be 100 million ETH. Mm -hmm. As far as we know today, uh, <laughs> there's 116 million ETH approximately. So clearly we, um, so why did that happen? It's because that 100 million ETH promised was based on a certain technical roadmap that ultimately didn't pan out and that they're they've fallen far behind on and so it it really reveals that uh these these systems left to their own devices people developers um w won't limit the amount of currency being issued 
you really have to have a decentralized network of folks who are, in a sense, ideologically committed to the idea of having non-dilutive money. Mm, yeah. Can we pick on Ethereum a little bit more? Because I feel like of all of the coins that are out there, right, it's usually Ethereum is the other one. That's, it's number two. It's number two, yeah. It's been around the longest comparatively. Like, I know there are other coins were created before Ethereum, but they didn't really last the test of time. Whereas Ethereum, I mean, it's been t- 2013, I think, or was it, I don't know, yeah, somewhere it, around there. It, it, it did the pre-sale, I think, in 2014-ish. Okay. Um, so, I mean, there are a couple of, there are some major issues that, that I see with Ethereum, um, but I think that you would explain it better than me. So I'm going <laughs> to let you get into it. I don't know. I'm actually interested in hearing your your explanation. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, um, hey, take a shot at it. Take a shot at it. So one of the things that happened very early on in the network was they tried to create something called the DAO, which was this, it was basically this autonomous company. Um, and they ra- they had they did a capital raise, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and uh, you could I would really liken it to a partnership agreement where you had a set of people do a capital contribution um, to a fund. Yep, and then this then this company would be an autonomous company where the code would actually dictate how the company was run. Well, and the the partners would vote cryptographically yep. um, and provide a governance mechanism for the and a, frankly a, a, a managerial mechanism for their company. Which uh, okay. Yeah. So what they did though is they put it on the Ethereum blockchain, um, and amongst a bunch of other things that were put on the blockchain, this was put on the blockchain. Um, and then there was a coder who found an error in the code of the DAO, and they basically, once the DAO was funded, was a- they were able to take all of the money out of this autonomous company. Um, and my understanding of it was that because the code is so much more complicated than Bitcoin, it- it's actually a lot more easy for a bug to appear, um, and a bug could be as serious as something like this. Um, and what I I bring this up, even though it happened such a long time ago, because I think it was forgotten really largely at this point, but also because what they did was concerning. So after people lost a lot of money, they decided to reverse the transaction. And under normal circumstances, people are pretty excited when, you know, hey, I got scammed and I get my money back. But in this instance, when you're thinking about it as a money that's supposed to be decentralized, that you're supposed to be using, um, it's actually concerning that they're able to <laughs> to reverse transactions in this way because um, theoretically they can do that on any transactions. That's right, and I, you know, I think that we should um, let let's to defend Ethereum. Okay, I'll defend Ethereum. Yeah, um, it was early days. <laughs> yeah, it was early days, and so therefore, um, who are we to to judge? Because Bitcoin actually um, during Bitcoin's early days. It also had its own bugs. We don't, you know, we could go look up the logs online, but we don't really think about it today because it was so long ago again. Um, and uh, so I, I, I do agree, though, that their willingness to do what's called a hard fork. And what a hard fork is, is basically saying that we're going to change the rules of this network in such a way that uh to do this, we're going to have to kick everyone off the network, and they're yeah. going to have to rejoin. Well, I think the other thing that's interesting, it's it's 
interesting. The DAO is interesting to me now also because of what they're doing currently on the Ethereum network, which is kind of a similar thing, right? I mean, they're basically creating a completely new Ethereum network that would be proof of stake versus proof of work. So maybe we can get into a little of what that is and what that would actually mean for for people who were who owned Ethereum or were interested in it and or were thinking about investing in it. Yeah, um, I guess my first response is we don't know what it means yet. <laughs> um, first of all, because it's it's very new, um, but also it's very incomplete and it's it's untested. And so um, we'll we'll have to see how it evolves. But um, today um, you might hear about Ethereum 2.0 and um, they, they, they've started phase zero. Uh, where you're able to, again, send your Ethereum to kind of like the DAO. It's it's a smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain um, that is going to lock up or has locked up a large amount of ETH. I think it's greater than 1% of the total ETH supply at this point. Wow. Um, and that uh, this, th so today... All this does is mean that you earn rewards on the ETH that you lock up in this contract. So essentially, I mean, for like in, in investor terms, it's like earning a yield. Yeah, and I think that even from a layperson's perspective, <laughs> maybe it it should be understood as being interest payments and on payment. on on you lending to the big or sorry to the Ethereum protocol itself. Um, and so, uh, in practice, what this means is that if you do, if, if you do this loan to the Ethereum network, then you won't get diluted, but everyone who does not do that loan is getting diluted. I see. Because it's not like, um, it's not like the Ethereum network is generating cash flows that are external to the network itself. It's all its own funny money. Um, and so any ETH that gets created to pay one person is just dilution from all of the other ETH holders. Uh, there, there's not uh, a positive sum there. Um, if they do actually make it through, let's say, so we're at phase zero, there's going to well, be a phase one and then a phase two. Right let me before. further clarify what yeah. phase zero entails. So, okay. um, and, I, you know, I wish we didn't spend... Too much money, or too much time. Time is money. Time is money. Um, on this, but I feel like it's important for, for folks to understand uh, some of the risks in this ecosystem. So with Ethereum 2.0, um, when you send that ETH to the contract, you can't get it back out. You can't yeah. get it back out. It's stuck in there by design. And uh, really, they're, they're trying to... Um, they're trying to push this migration to this new system. And uh, this is the mechanism that they thought would, would be ideal. Now, the, the, this, that would be fine if it was the case that um, it's not going to take long for them to make it so that you can transfer your uh, ETH within the new world. Um, and that's going to be in phase one and a half and mm. phase two. But that's actually, they don't have a concrete timeline for that it's gonna be they say two years and when a software developer tells me two years they well, mean 10 or 20 <laughs> if ever yeah if they don't leave i mean one of the other interesting things though that you pointed out is that um if you were going from ethereum to ethereum 2.0 um it's not uh it's not fungible right because you can't go back to ethereum 
um, in which case it actually is it's a taxable event to you. So not only are you taking potentially gains that you had in Ethereum, then moving them into something that's going to be locked up and has potentially no time horizon on it forever being finished, but you're also going to pay taxes um, on money that you don't even really have because now it's locked up. Right. So if you're doing this, I would really suggest, first of all, get get a tax lawyer, uh, get a tax accountant and work with them to figure out exactly what's going on because it's fairly complex as far as financial transactions go. Um, but second of all, I would just question why you're getting involved in this at all because frankly, I would suggest that um, anyone who is uh, interested in 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 these cryptocurrencies as an investment or as something that they're going to hold for the long term um, should really just stay focused on Bitcoin because there are and you know we just went into the weeds on Ethereum we didn't cover like a tenth of what they're doing and so if you were trying to do diligence all of these assets you would quickly be extremely overwhelmed there's no way you're going to be able to do diligence all of this, um, especially because you have to have all of this very specialized knowledge about cryptography and uh, software development and distributed systems um, that most retail investors don't have. Mm. And yeah, I mean, we already talked about how hard it is to even just secure your private keys, let alone to know that any every investor would know every little thing about how the protocol worked for all of the coins. Yeah, and at that point, it kind of defeats what we were talking about earlier. Of Bitcoin offers this way of simplifying your life versus having to do diligence, for example, equity investments, right? Where you would have to uh, go audit all these financial statements and all of this. Which is no joke. I know people talk about like, oh, I, I know what I'm doing and all this stuff. But I mean, I remember when I was evaluating individual companies, I mean, you basically have to read the 10K like it's a book, and it's it's not exactly that exciting. Um, and you have to do a lot of analysis behind the scenes for just one company, and then you need to fill your entire portfolio, right? So, like for these managers who are running these funds, they've got you know they've got teams of analysts looking at these things all the time, and it's all they're looking at. And most of them are even concentrated specifically on one um, like one type of uh, sector in the market. So for somebody to be an expert on you know, like they can't even be an expert on all companies, right? That <laughs> they have to have specific analysts looking at that versus like, I mean, the crypto space, there's so many things out there um, that you could be looking at that you would have to be an expert in all of these things. I, I just, I find it really hard to believe that the average person can do that. Um, so it does help to be able to narrow some of this stuff down so that it makes it a little bit easier of a, of a decision on behalf of a consumer. Yeah, and that might raise the question of, okay, well, why not do an index of the, a market cap weighted index of the cryptocurrencies, which, you know, in practice would mean that you're 70% Bitcoin, uh, 10 to 15% Ethereum, and then the rest, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it, it, on its face, it's a, it's a plausible argument. Um, the problem you run into, though, is that in practice, uh, you're going to want to be able to s spend this money, right? Okay, so already <laughs> you're going to have to sell this index uh -huh. for either to, to get a distribution of the underlying, um, you know, or, or uh, to, to just go buy Bitcoin with it um, at some point. Um, now, the, the other part of it is uh, what 
there there's it, it doesn't make logical sense to have multiple monies because then you just get back into a barter arrangement and yeah i mean i also i think like if you're thinking about it from your own portfolio right if you're just kind of a person who holds stocks and bonds you don't really go out there and try to buy a currency etf like nobody really well, we sort of talked about touched on this but nobody really wants to hold usd euro um, and then, you know, Canadian dollars and a bunch of other things in there, um, unless like you're doing some sort of weird speculative thing, um, in which case it's, I mean, it's kind of the same thing as holding a basket of cryptocurrencies. If you think of them as currencies, which is what we're supposed to think of them as, right, then it doesn't really make sense to do that. That's right. Now, uh, if we go back also to uh, equity investing fundamentals, the reason that you uh, diversify uh, is to... Um, remove the idiosyncratic risk mm -hmm. right so that you have exposure to to the beta to to the market performance of um of equities um now th that that works really well with companies um but w in cryptocurrency specifically the problem you run into is that um it's it's not the case that these cryptocurrencies have uh, different idiosyncrasies and thus you want to diversify away from Bitcoin um, because Bitcoin is actually when we when I talked about the trade-offs earlier mm -hmm. the one principle that I see emerge from Bitcoin's trade-offs is that they're trying to minimize uncertainty yeah and so Bitcoin as a system as a currency is already trying to minimize idiosyncratic risk and all of these other cryptocurrencies they are interested in increasing idiosyncratic risk in order to have marketing announcements basically yes yes for sure and so um you're actually taking on it, it when you diversify quote unquote in cryptocurrencies um it's not the case that you are reducing overall risk and thus that you are getting a free lunch on the frontier between risk and return mm -hmm. what you're doing is increasing risk in order to increase return so when people talk about diversified crypto portfolios, the word they should actually use is not diversified, it's leveraged crypto portfolios. Yeah, that's a great point. And, um, you know, some people like leveraged trading and, and they, they've got that risk appetite. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's most what don't. most people should be doing. No, most yeah. people should be very careful about leverage and really they should try to minimize it as much as possible. Yeah, I also, I mean, I wanted to get into one other thing about other currencies or other crypto besides Bitcoin, which is um, the idea of blockchain, not Bitcoin blockchain. Um, mm. And I feel like this is something that, I mean, I know is definitely not common in the Bitcoin, you know, maximalist threads, but certainly is common for maybe other listeners who are, who are tuning in here. Um, why is that not really something that people should be thinking about? So... Blockchains existed before Bitcoin did. Uh, we just didn't call them that. <laughs> um, what did we call them? So uh, we called them Merkle trees. So uh, it's a it's a cryptography <laughs> thing. It's been known for a while, uh, but not uh, to be confused with Angela Merkel. Yes, yes. Um, it's a it, L E versus E L. Actually. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, so it's not a particularly interesting computer science data structure um, or it was not until Bitcoin's price started going up and we had people scratching their heads wondering why is Bitcoin's price going up 
well, it must be the underlying technology mm. of blockchain, even though this underlying technology has existed before in more sophisticated forms. So, for example, software developers use uh, a version control system called Git. This version control system uses cryptography in order to maintain the integrity of the history of the changes that have been made to the code. Um, it was created by the same guy who created Linux. Okay, he's a genius for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, people don't say, "Oh, you know, we should be talking about blockchain technology, not Git," because nobody's talking about Git anyway, <laughs> uh, because its price is not going up. Yeah, yeah. You know, if if but it's not a money. It's not a money, um, and that's really what has has confused a lot of people is that Bitcoin is several different things at the same time. It's a network protocol. So it's like HTTP. Mm -hmm. um, it's also a money, so like US dollars or gold. Um, and it's also a payment system like Visa or PayPal. Um, and it's also arguably has become a movement, uh, a, 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 uh, a belief system. Mm -hmm. uh, if you talk with Bitcoiners, you might be shocked to find out how many of them are open to, if not proponents of carnivory, of literally only eating meat, you know? <laughs> yes, you guys uh, definitely have some interesting habits for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, part of it is kind of just, uh, okay, that's fine, cultural type stuff. Um, but uh, it's, Bitcoin is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And, and to some people, they just want to use Bitcoin uh, you know, like we heard about with the Silk Road, right? They want to buy their drugs on the internet, mm. okay? And then other people, they don't want to do that at all. They just want to hold this long-term asset yeah. and they want to see their purchasing power increase. Um, so it has evolved into a lot of different narratives. Um, and what I really encourage people to do is to uh, really understand, first of all, you know, do they feel like this is a problem in their life that they they, they don't have savings technology, hmm. right? Um, if you and I think that the um, because we're always getting incentivized to go spend our money, whether it's on consumer goods or investment goods, um, that it causes people a lot of anxiety. They yeah, worry. I mean, I think this really brings us kind of full circle to where we started, right? It's that the idea that people. It's it's hard to get ahead, right? It's hard to get ahead right now because we're constantly being told that there's no inflation out there. And yet, when you look around you, if you want to get something that's high quality, I and mean, we were just talking about this last night, I ordered these like ridiculous sized prawns off the internet because I really like fish and I wanted to get really high quality fish and you can't really get that around here. And so I ordered these prawns off the internet and... <laughs> Pierre was like, how much were they per pound? Just out of curiosity. And I don't know why in my head I thought they were $13 a pound, but it turns out they were $30 a pound. Um, so when you really think about it, right, like if people are saying there's no inflation and yet I'm buying giant shrimp for $30 a pound, like something is missing here in the equation. Um, and I know that that's not everybody's situation, but it does really, if you kind of look at it at, from anybody's perspective, right, if you just look at what's going on in, in rental markets or in real estate, right, it's a lot harder for you to be able to get something affordable um, and people are not making more money. Uh, and there's just, we're sort of in this environment where like, it's, it's hard to get ahead. It's hard to become wealthy. Um, and 
Bitcoin is something that provides you with a savings technology, another way to save, another way to help yourself. Yeah, that's right. And like you mentioned real estate, and I think that one of the reasons why real estate has become unaffordable is because people have been using it as a store of value. Mm -hmm. Where like to that, like they'll say like, oh, I'm, I'm parking my money in real estate. Yes, I hear what, that all the time. What they mean is that they're bidding up the price of real estate for everyone else. <laughs> um, and yeah, and as could be seen, right, in Manhattan when we lived there, I mean, there were just empty, literally empty apartment buildings. Not the whole building, but like from floor, you know, 20 up, people would basically just park their money there and they wouldn't even be living there. And like that's where, you know, people would typically want to live, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, and, and they weren't doing it because they're selfish yeah. and they don't want others to live there. They're doing it because they don't have any other good options. And I think that Bitcoin gives them a good option and uh, they just need to learn about it and learn how to use it and uh, start using it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> All right, well, is there are there any other questions before we wrap it up? It's an uh, hour and 10. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think we did pretty well on this one. And um, for all the listeners out there, if you have questions, send them in. Um, you can find me at money underscore owners or at Morgan with an E Rochard. You can also send Pierre a note. Um, he has a lot more followers than me, though. So you maybe have better luck asking me. <laughs> He's Pierre underscore Rochard on Twitter. Um, you can also send in any questions that you have um, to the Money Owners website, or you can DM me. But Money Owners website, it's moneyowners.com forward slash ask Morgan with an E. Um, and yeah, I mean, I this was super fun for me. It was super fun for me as well. Thanks for having me on Money Owners. Thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll talk to you all in two weeks. Oh, and happy holidays. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Money Owners Podcast. As a reminder, Money Owners LLC does not provide investment advice. It is also not a tax advisor, and Morgan Rochard does not provide tax advice or tax preparation. Money Owners LLC is also not a law firm, and Morgan Rochard is not an attorney. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will tune in again for our next show.